Welcome to another of the Cood Street podcasts of uh, 10 Minutes With uh, that Jonathan, Sean, and I have been doing since March. This is Gary Wolf, and today I'm delighted to spend uh, 10 or more minutes with uh, Veronica Shanos, who is not only a Shirley Jackson award-winning author, but also a scholar and professor of fairy tales and fantasies. How are you today, Veronica? I'm I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is this is it's so delightful to be doing this. I'm glad to have you here as well. And has your semester started now, or it officially starts tomorrow? Which means I've spent the past few days frantically putting together course websites because it's all it's all remote learning, all online learning, which teaching, which I've never done before, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had to learn a lot of new things very quickly. And I suspect you were one of the people who were caught in mid semester last spring having to shift to online. Oh, such a nightmare, I have to say, and I, I do not feel good about um, about how it worked out. It was a bit disastrous. So I'm, I took a I took a summer course my university offered on online teaching, and I feel more confident this term. Fingers crossed. Good luck. Good luck with that. Thank you. Uh, let's get to the questions we ask everybody because it's been a fascinating set of responses when I talk to people. Uh, what are you reading during the lockdown? Do you find it easy to read, or in some cases, people say it's almost impossible to concentrate? Well, I found it close to impossible. My son is five years old, and starting in March, his kind of, his pre-K went remote, and then his camp did not start until August. So it's been it's been not conducive to the quiet contemplation of reading um, around my household. <laughs> but um, what a remote pre-K sounds like! It's <laughs> it's it's very silly. I mean, <laughs> his teachers did their best. They're wonderful teachers, and they did everything one could do for remote pre-K, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's five. So, um, so I, but I have actually been reading to him a lot. He's he really enjoys it when I read him chapter books. Um, so one thing I have been doing is reworking my way through the All of a Kind Family series by Sidney Taylor, um, which he loves about five little girls growing up, five little Jewish girls growing up on the Lower East Side, nineteen twelve to nineteen eighteen, and uh, I grew up with them. My mother grew up with them. And I didn't think my son would like them because he's very much into trains and cars and trucks and things that, uh-huh. but he loves them. Oh my goodness. Great. I, I read one chapter. He asks for two more. We get to the end of one book. He asks to just start it all over again. Um, and then on my own time, I've been reading what there is of it. I've, I'm only about 50 or 60 pages into Chris Moriarty's The Inquisitor's Apprentice which is a middle grade fantasy novel, which is practically like Veronica Bait. You know, it's, uh, it's set in an alternate universe, New York City around 1910. So similar setting and about um, a 13, 14 year old uh, uh, boy, uh, son of Jewish immigrants downtown who joins the section of the NYPD in this world, which is responsible for regulating illicit magic, policing illicit magic use. Um, yeah, I mean, as you do, and it's 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 got it's it's doing some interesting things with sort of refiguring New York City leftist history through a magical lens. So the Wobblies become the international witches of the world, and right. the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory becomes the Pentacle Shirtwaist Factory. Really? Um, yeah. It's, well, the, the reason I, I, I surprised at that, I just finished reading Alex Harrow's The Once and Future Witches, mm-hmm. in which the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire becomes the Square Shirtwaist Fire. Oh, interesting. Well, I clearly need to get that and read it then because I'm on a I'm on a themed reading list, clearly. Um, 
yeah, it's, I, I'm not, in, I'm not far enough into it to be able to say more about it, unfortunately, but I, it is, it is definitely what you would put in a bear trap if you wanted me to come get caught. That's, that's, that's a period of New York history that does fascinate you, doesn't it? It really does. Um, it really does. And I, I can't, I don't have any good reason for it. I, it's just that it always has ever since I was a little girl and reading the all the kind family books. So I, perhaps that's where it all began with Sidney Taylor and her, her sisters on the Lower East Side. Do you have comfort reading that you co- go to in times of stress? I mean, uh, the Sydney mm-hmm. Taylor sound like that, but. Absolutely. Um, and recently, one of the things I was reading for comfort were um, Sarah Caudwell's murder mysteries. Thus was Adonis murdered and the sirens sang of murder. And what's the other one? Um, the Shortest Way to Hades, which um, are wonderful sort of frothy light. If Oscar Wilde wrote murder mysteries in the 1970s, um, about this group of young English barristers who, who get into escapades involving sex and money and drugs and taxes, and this uh, history of law barrister at Oxford who trots down every so often to London to help them help them out of their scrapes, um, and they're just they're delightful. It's they they do all kinds of interesting things with gender and sexuality. The the barrister, not the barrister, sorry, the professor who who's the first person narrator is never gendered in the text. Um, through three or four novels, you don't find out whether they're meant to be a man or a woman or a non-binary. It's, their name is Hillary, um, could go either way. And I like to think of them as a woman because I'm a woman and I read them and I, I, I identify with the professor, of course. Um, but it's Sounds open. Like- a game too, where you'd be trying to find because they have to interact. The narrator has to interact mm-hmm. with other characters. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess that Caudwell has to really be careful about managing those interactions. Absolutely, but the wonderful thing is she's so um, deft with it. You don't notice it. You just don't notice. Um, so I think I read the first one before someone pointed out to me that the narrator was never gendered. Um, and then I had to go back and reread it and thought, well, this was very skillfully done. And they're just very frothy. You know, it takes, it, in a time of great uh, angst, such as these days, it, it can take your mind off of a lot. I, a number of people I've talked to have, uh, have gone back to favorite kinds of mysteries, or even in some cases, rereading uh, old mysteries. And, and somebody was saying, it's, it's, it portrays a world in which problems actually get solved. Yes. I, I read once that really detective novels, murder mysteries, are, are fantasies of a world where not, not, justice prevails. There is some kind of uh-huh. justice. It prevails. Puzzles are solved, right? Puzzles have answers. And they're reasonable answers, which you can deduce by examining what's going on around you. And that's such a compelling fantasy um, in days, I think, when things seem to be heading toward ever more chaos and nobody, nobody in power seems interested in solving any problems. Um, quite the contrary, really. Well, as uh, the, the third thing we go back to is, uh, is, is what you've got uh, coming out. Uh, and I know you have a collection of short stories and I know you have an introduction by Jane Yolen. So congratulations ah, on thank that. You. I, I cannot tell you how much that means to me. I, Again, I grew up reading Jane Yule, and I, I, she's, uh, I can't even say how much her work has influenced me because, you know, I've been reading it so long that it's, it's like Terry Pratchett. I, I, I think I've internalized a lot of it. <laughs> um, so it just it means so much to me that she agreed to do that. And I, I just read the introduction in Page Proofs 
a couple of weeks ago. And I, I just, I was blushing while reading it. It was just so exciting. I can't tell you. <laughs> like you, Jane is, has been a scholar and a, a researcher in, in fairy tales and folk mm-hmm. tales. And um, I, do you think, um, obviously the answer is yes, but in what ways does your research inform your fiction? You know, I have long felt, um, and I don't know if Jane Yolen feels this way too, but I've long felt that I'm, all, I'm often approaching the same problem, not problem meaning something that's wrong, but problem meaning something to think about from two different directions, right? I may approach it through my scholarship. I may approach it through my creative writing, but it's the same knot. It's the same, the same knot that I'm worrying at. Um, and it's just two different ways of trying to understand it. So um, Burning Girls uh, and other stories um, contains, as a lot of my recent fiction has, a lot of work about the way magic intersect and fairy tales intersect with Jewishness. Mm-hmm. And my, most, my current uh, research project is on uh, the figure, is on the role Jews have played in the English language fairy tale tradition, um, which is, is both large and small. Um, so I, I approach it in my scholarship by looking at, um, 19th century fairy tales that feature Jewish characters by looking at the role of Jewish folklorists and the creation of our fairy tale corpus in the 19th century, and then jumping to current times and looking at the work by people like Jane Yolen, um, uh, sort of writing back to those issues. And in my creative fiction, I do, you know, similar things. <laughs> well, I was going to say that one of the things that, uh, that, that, that you both do, and, I've, and Jane has been doing this for years, is using her contemporary f- versions of fairy tales to kind of unpack and interrogate what, a- anti-Semitic themes, like she's done Rumpelstiltskin two or three mm-hmm. times, two or three different ways. Um, but the difference seems to be that she's focusing largely, at least in the familiar, as familiar as I am, and she's got a couple of anthology uh, collections out recently, um, but she's focusing mostly on the classic grim fairy tales. So the English fairy tales, uh, I, I suppose you're looking at what, Andrew Lang's collection? Very so much so. I mean, this is something interesting. I just discovered this last summer back when the libraries were open and I could still do research. Um, the Blue Fairy Book, right, perhaps met so many of our introductions for so many generations to the world of fairy tales, came out in 1889, has never been out of print, but has been redacted. Um, in its original editions, the very first fairy tale Lang selected was one called The Bronze Ring. Not one of the classics, not, not even one of the ones by Les Conteuses, one that had just been published that year in French, collected in Greece, I think, um, in which the antagonist is a wicked old Jew um, who is punished at the end by having all his bones broken into many pieces. Um, yeah, and it's not coded. It's very, very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I'm trying to think about in my scholarship, at least, is, good God, why? <laughs> what was Lang thinking when he thought, how do I want to introduce children to the world of fairy tales? And I'm wondering what it has to do with the huge waves of Jewish immigration that were hitting England as well as the U.S. in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, so that's one of the major parts, pieces of that first chapter that I'm working on. That sounds fascinating. It's, it's, it's same, the same questions were raised about novels like Dracula, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, distrust of Eastern Europeans buying a property in your neighborhood, actually. Yes, and threatening to tur- threatening your women, right? Threatening to turn your women right. into, you know, horrible child-killing sexual creatures and all kinds of things. I mean, you see it 
it's almost like Melmotte in Trollope's um, The Way We Live Now. Um, mm. You know, it's, 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 it's a supernatural version of that. And of course, Melmotte was, uh, was, was supposed to be Jewish. Well, tell us a little bit about the Burning Girls and other stories, because the, the story itself is the one that won you a Shirley Jackson Award, am I right? It is. And it is the story I worked on for the longest in my life. I spent eight years writing that story. So I felt it was virtue rewarded in some ways. <laughs> I felt very lucky um, because obviously one can do all sorts of hard work and not, not have it recognized. But I felt very, very, very um, thrilled um, that, that the hard work in this case did pay off. Um, because I'm so, I'm so pleased with the way that story turned out. It's so different than the way I originally conceived of it. I had originally mm -hmm. conceived of it as a sort of light, jolly, frothy tale oh told by the Miller's daughter character. Yeah. And, um, what happened was I did more research and the more research I did into sweatshops of that period, the less light and jolly and frothy the story became, um, not just sweatshops of that period, but why, why women were why Jewish women were emigrating from Eastern Europe and what they were running from. It just light and frothy was no longer going to work. Um, so that story is definitely in there. And I have two new stories in there as well. Um, one about Emma Goldman meeting Baba Yaga in the Russian woods in 1921. Um, and uh, one that is one that is less fairy tale related and more about um, Bloody Mary coming out of the mirror and taking revenge on um, on on an on an older man who has done a younger woman wrong, <laughs> uh -huh. and I suppose the story phosphorus is included in the collection because that struck me as being about as close to a horror story as anything I've seen. <laughs> Definitely, I I love that story so much, um, phosphorus. It, I. I, I felt I, I tried to do, I, I, it was just so interesting to write. It, I mean, and the horror elements, like, I mean, I think of Stephen King's Carrie, right? The uh -huh. horror of Carrie is not her telekinesis. That's why you can't close the book and feel better because telekinesis doesn't exist, or at least I don't mm -hmm. think it does. Right. The horror is the child abuse and the right. abuse by her peers. And in Phosphorus, right, the horror isn't, isn't the grandmother's witchery that, if anything, ameliorates it. The horror is Fossey Jaw and the working conditions that yeah. even the winning of the strike didn't end the use of white phosphorus. It wasn't even on the striker's radar that that was something that they could do. Um, and so when you close the story, no, that's, that, that kind of thing is still going on, of course, terrible um, corporate abuses um, and their results. And the collection is coming out next spring, I think. Yeah, so March 2nd, March 2nd. So just almost a week before my birthday. Oh, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. Okay. It is Sorry. We're about at the end of our time. No, we've, uh, this has been delightful. Uh, once again, we've spent more than 10 minutes with this time with Veronica Shanus. This is Gary Wolf, and it's been a Good Street Podcast. <laughs>